invite you to rise and join me in Hebrews chapter 9, starting at verse 11. We'll be reading through 10.4. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered by the most entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary but was only a, that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But these sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Appreciated the song selections. 
And yes, David, I would echo that uh, plenty of songs to choose from. And, you know, I, I, the song, There is a Fountain, uh, I, I remember as a kid growing up in the church, that, that was a song that I, I always had a strange, hard time with. Because it was just the, the first stanza in thinking about what it was describing. It, it's, it's pretty shocking uh, to, to really think about there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's vein and sinners plunged beneath that flood. I mean, the, the picture there is one that was a little startling to me as a young person. But thinking about how wonderful it is now uh, years removed from that time, uh, that is a, uh, that fountain filled with blood that it cleanses, it purifies, it redeems, and it's a wonderful hymn to solidify the truths of the gospel and what Christ did for us at the cross. We're going to be looking a lot at that this morning in our passage, and so before we do, I'm going to ask if you would join me in a word of prayer, and we will move forward into Hebrews 9 and, and 10. Father, you are God of heaven. You rule over all the kingdoms and nations. In your hand is, is all power and might. There's no one who can withstand you. And we acknowledge, Father, this morning as Jehoshaphat did back in the day. He said we have no power against this enemy that opposes us. Nor do we know what to do. But our eyes are upon you. And Lord, I pray that would be so of us today, that our eyes would be upon you, our minds would be set upon you this morning, that you would help us to see our sin for what it is, to live circumspectly, knowing that the days are evil, to walk in love as Christ himself loved us, to walk in the light as he himself walked in the light. Father, this morning we're reminded that you have put away our sin through your son's death on the cross. Teach us the significance of Christ's death on the cross. Empower us now to, to live with understanding and help us connect your dying with our daily living. Father, it is an amazing thing that you put away our sin. And I pray you would continue to wash over us what that means when we wake up each morning. And I pray that you would grant to us that we might spend our days a forgiven, heavenly-minded, and grateful people to the praise and glory of our Lord Jesus. Pray this. Amen. I took the boys, uh, some of you I shared last week that I was taking the boys on a little road trip. We went to uh, Chicago, of all places, last Monday, and we got to see a, a baseball game. We got to see, I had a, a friend of mine who uh, works for the Chicago White Sox, and so he got tickets for the four of us, and we were able to go watch the White Sox and the Indians play on Monday afternoon, evening, and saw a doubleheader. And it, I, I'm not a huge, I have to be honest, I'm not a huge baseball fan, but, but I, I know the game a bit, and I can appreciate a good game when I see one. And, and, and even for some of you here today, you, you might not know a whole lot about the game of baseball. I, I realize that, but I would imagine that most, if not all, 
have at least heard of the idea of a home run. Everybody in here heard that before? Home run? Home run, know what that is, right? It's really the highlight of a baseball game for most people, a home run. It happens, in case you don't know, most of the time a home run happens when the pitcher throws the ball and the batter at the plate has a bat, he has this wooden bat, and he swings and he makes contact with the ball and the ball flies over this fence. The ball that's being pitched oftentimes is moving at about a 90 to 95 mile an hour clip, makes contact, the sound, the crack of the bat on the ball, and you see it fly, takes a ride. And it goes over the fence. And most of the time, it results, especially if the home team hits it, results in cheers from the crowd. Fireworks went off. We got to see fireworks. Really, in many ways, home runs are comparable to slam dunks in the game of basketball and touchdowns in the game of football. To the baseball fan who comes to the game, nothing is more exciting than seeing a home run. And we got to see four of them in one game on Monday. Four of them. Four four sets of fireworks going off. But you know, there uh, uh, there were a couple times during that game on Monday where there was, uh, I, I was able to witness really a much lesser known part of baseball's game. And it happened when there was a player on first base and this player who's up to the plate, he's got his bat, and, and he squares around to bunt. And he bunted the ball down the third baseline. The third baseman comes, scoops it up, pitches, throws him out at first. He was executing, that batter was executing what's known in baseball as a sacrifice. Sacrifi- sacrificial bunt. In baseball, that play goes down in the book as a sacrifice bunt. And it's a play that oftentimes gets called by the coach, third base coach probably. Got a player who's on first, you want to try and get that runner around closer to scoring. And so you want to try whatever you can do to get him in advance around the bases. What's interesting about this particular play, this sacrifice in baseball, is that the gentleman who's squaring around to bunt, he's doing so understanding good and well that he is probably going to get out. But the out is going to be worth it because his teammate's going to get closer to home. And there's another example of this sacrifice And it happens when there's a runner on third base, less than two outs, and the the person up to the plate is just going to try and hit it as far as he can hit it out into the outfield. And he hits it way out into the outfield. Deep fly ball, catches it, boom, he's out. The guy on third base tags, and he runs home, and he scores. That's called a sacrifice fly. The batter is willing, again, to sacrifice himself with an out, in order that his teammate can score a run. Now, now we have to understand something. The sacrifice in baseball, it's not memorable. It's not a memorable event. You know, people the next day at the office around the water cooler aren't typically talking about, hey, did you see that sacrifice in the game last night? That's oftentimes not the conversation. 
People like to talk about the spectacular home run, not the sacrifice bunt, not the sacrifice fly. You see, the people of the First Testament, they operated in the context of sacrifice, didn't they? They knew what it was to offer sacrifice. And yet many of them failed to see the limitations of their sacrifice. Their offering of sacrifice was an animal, a bull, a goat. And while for a time God used the animal offerings as a means of sacrifice, it was not intended to be that way forever. In fact, the offering of sacrifice, the bull and the goat, was put in place to prepare his people for a perfect sacrifice yet to come in Jesus. The offering of sacrifice was put in place not only to prepare his people, but to point his people to a spotless lamb that was coming. The lamb of God was Jesus, and he was going to, with this one sacrifice, take away the sin of the world. With the sacrifice of himself, he put away sin. And so as we turn to Hebrews 9 and 10 today, we're going to see something amazing. This is absolutely amazing. Christ's death puts away your sin. Christ's death, we could substitute the word sacrifice. His sacrifice puts away your sin. Now, many of us here are familiar with this idea, this concept. In fact, it might not be a surprise at all to say that Christ's death puts away sin. And many of us have grown up understanding this to be true. And we've heard it preached and taught throughout the years that Christ's death puts away sin. And as a result, some of you this morning may be inclined to tune this message out, thinking it to be something that you've heard. But I want you to listen this morning because Christ's death is his sacrifice Imagine, to go back to the baseball illustration, imagine if there were enough bases to hold everyone in the world and at just the right time, God calls on the greatest pinch hitter, baseball term, biblical word, would be substitute. God calls upon the greatest pinch hitter of all time, the RBI, the runs batted in leader of all time. I want you to see that Jesus didn't just clear the bases with a blast out of the ballpark. He cleared them through a sacrifice. He didn't lay down multiple sacrifices either. One sacrifice was all it took to move. Not one, not two, not three base runners, but any and all who receive his sacrifice by faith. You see, his one sacrifice provides the way to get each one of you home. You want to know how to get home? His sacrifice is the way to get home. His sacrifice advances you to be with him in heaven. It's only through his sacrifice, in fact, that you can gain victory on the scoreboard. Real victory, listen, real victory comes in Christ through Christ's one sacrifice. His sacrifice equates to death. Christ's death puts away your sin. So instead of memorizing a bunch of facts about Jesus and being able to recite Jesus died on the cross for my sins by the way it's good to know that 
I'd like to challenge you this morning as I've been challenged. You see, when I read Hebrews 9 and 10, and a good majority of Hebrews for that matter, it causes me to consider the sacrifice of the one that I confess as Lord and Savior. It also causes me to think deeply about his death that put away my sin. You see, Jesus, the Son of God, he took on flesh and blood, the Bible says in Romans 8, on account of sin. In fact, he condemned sin in the flesh. When he was raised up, his hands and feet, having been nailed to that old rugged cross, he was willingly laying down his life, knowing good and well that he was going to get out. He was going to die. But it was his death. It was his sacrifice that would bring us life. You know, the Bible in, chapter, in John chapter 5 talks about how we, in Christ, we crossed over from death to life. The way we cross over from death to life has everything to do about what we're talking about this morning. Everything to do with what Christ did, with him laying down his life, sacrificing himself, giving of himself. He sacrificed himself on account of our sin. And there's a twofold question that really comes to mind as you, as you consider and think through Christ's death putting away my sin. If Christ's death, if his sacrifice puts away my sin, what does that have to say then about my sin and about how seriously God views my sin? That's the first part of the question. The second part of the question is, how then should I live in light of such a sacrifice offered on my behalf? The Bible says that the wages of sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. What we really deserve, in other words, because of our sin is death. Through one man, Adam, sin entered the world. And death through sin. And thus death spread to all men because all sinned. That's Romans 5.12. You see, to know that Christ died for my sin, that's pretty heavy. He died for my sin. It's one thing to die from old age. It's one thing to die of natural causes. To die in your sleep. Christ's life was lived out with a redemptive purpose. And that redemptive purpose was realized as he laid down his life on a cross and took nails in his hands and feet. He died as a sheep led to the slaughter. He died carrying out the perfect will of his heavenly father. He died, listen, to put away your sin. He became like us and made the, the greatest sacrifice of all time. And it was fitting for only him to do so. The one for whom all things and by whom are all things. The one who brought many sons to glory through his sufferings. That's Hebrews chapter 2. Is it a big deal that Christ died for your sin? If you're, if you're, if you're thinking about that question and you're going, eh, you're kind of, you don't know, you're kind of straddling the fence. Perhaps you need to be reminded of your sin. 
the depth of your sin. What sin is. Reminded that sin is a separator. It's a wedge between you and your relationship with God through Jesus. It's this great chasm that exists, keeping you at a distance from a holy God. The Bible says that a little of this stuff, sin, a little of it, leavens the whole lump. It spreads. If God was willing to give his only son that he might die for my sin, then God must have some off-the-charts view of sin. A view that, truth be told, I don't know that I have. That kind of view. He was willing to send his son to die for my sin. You read the scriptures and you see examples of how God deals with sin. You remember the story of Achan? Remember that? You remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5? And you cringe at the thought of what's happening in both of these accounts. One man stole a few items, and another couple told a lie. But death? Those things deserve death, Lord? Do do we tend to handle sin with the thought of how God sees it and how how he sees it through the lens of his word? Is sin as disturbing to us as it is, no doubt, to God? Just gave you two examples. To him, that's pretty disturbing. You know, as I read through the remainder of Hebrews 9... In the first few verses of Hebrews 10, I'm reminded of the sacrifice of Christ and its effect on my life. And so the central question I'd like for us to deal with as we look at the text is if Christ's death, if his sacrifice puts away sin, and I believe it does, if it does, how then shall I live? How am I going to live? What's the Bible teach us about how we are to live in light of what he's done? I want you to keep in mind that the immediate audience of the book of Hebrews is not too far removed from the actual sacrifice of Jesus. Okay? The sacrifice has happened. And yet there were some who had yet to receive this sacrifice by faith, opting instead for the familiar First Testament sacrifices comprised of the blood of bulls and goats. Now Hebrews 9.15 tells us, for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of what? Death. By means of death. That's how he's the mediator of this new covenant, by means of death. So if Christ's death, if his sacrifice puts away sin, what difference should this make? Well, first of all, we need to know that through this that we are forgiven. And so we should live as forgiven people. We should live as forgiven people. That's this first section I want to address in verses 16 through 22. We should live as forgiven people. You know, Paul says to the church at Ephesus that you were one time without Christ. You were aliens of the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the promise, having no hope. You were without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. How have you been brought near? By the blood of Jesus. That's how you've been brought near. 
See, forgiveness is attached to the blood of Jesus. A lot in this section has to do with the blood of Jesus. It's going to connect to the blood. The blood was was symbolic of his death. The blood was also the life source in someone, wasn't it? And so here we're going to see that forgiveness is something that comes through Christ. We see in that same book of Ephesians in chapter 1 that God tells us that in Christ we have redemption. We have been bought back. We have redemption through, through what? Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. How is that possible? According to the riches of his grace. It's something you didn't deserve. Something I didn't deserve. According to the riches of his grace, forgiveness of sins is made possible. In Luke's gospel, we're, we're introduced to a sinner. She's actually labeled a sinner. We're introduced to a sinner of a woman. She's at the feet of Jesus and she's weeping and she's wiping his feet with her hair. She's kissing his feet and anointing them with this fragrant oil. And really, when we read that passage, it makes most, if not all of us, feel just a little uncomfortable. And Jesus says that her sins, which are many, are forgiven in her. For she loved much. So here we see forgiveness attached to love. How should we live in light of what Christ did for us? We should live as a forgiven people. Well, what's what's at the root of being a forgiven people? How do we express the idea of being forgiven? We express it by our love. And Jesus said, she loved much. To whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. You remember Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples and we just got done partaking of this this morning. Jesus takes the cup and he says, this is my blood of the new covenant. The new covenant, which is shed for for many for the remission or for the forgiveness of sins. It was a picture. Jesus was leaving with them a picture of what this was all about. How forgiveness was possible. It was through him by means of his blood. You see, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're not recalling facts of what Jesus did. But we're stirred once again to ask the question, what difference is his death making in my life? What difference is Jesus' death making in my life? In light of his sacrifice, how then am I living? See, Christ, having put away my sins at the cross, how has that sacrifice affected the way that I live? Is there any change in my life as a result of Christ's sacrifice? In verses 16 and 17 of the text in Hebrews 9, you you see language that's reminiscent of a will or a final testament. And the writer says that there's no power behind the testament unless the testator dies. He's the one who makes out the will. The testament holds no power. It's simply words on a page until the testator dies. Does that make sense? The power of what's written there doesn't take effect until that person dies. Well, then from verses 18 through 22, the writer is speaking of the Mosaic law under the Old Covenant. And he shows that blood played a major role even in that covenant. Doesn't take long, especially if you're reading Exodus and Leviticus. You start to realize there was a lot of blood in the Old Covenant. A lot of blood, a lot of animals being sacrificed, a lot of animals being killed. Blood was shed on countless occasions in the Old Covenant. 
Blood was sprinkled on the book, it says here. It was sprinkled on, on the tabernacle. It was sprinkled on all the vessels of the ministry. It was sprinkled on the people. Think about it. Blood. Blood was all over the place. It was representative of what was happening here. There was a sacrifice happening. The blood served as a covering and cleansing in the old covenant as much as it could cover and cleanse. And yet this blood taken from animals year after year was merely pointing to a sacrifice yet to come that would genuinely cover and effectually cleanse. Hebrews 9.22 says, According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. Purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So while the old covenant was powerless to effect the salvation of man, to put away his sins. The new covenant contains power through the one-time sacrificial death of Jesus, the mediator, the testator of the new covenant. Forgiveness for sins finally arrives on the scene through the shed blood of Jesus. So understanding that forgiveness is attached to sin... That's what's forgiven and covered, friends. Your sin. And, and sin, in God's eyes, demands death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And so God's redemptive plan sent Jesus down here to earth on account of sin in the likeness of man and for the purpose of a sacrifice, death on a cross. And the sacrifice to provide forgiveness of our sins would come through Christ's obedience to lay down his life in death. And in return, listen, this is good. In return, we would receive the gift of everlasting life. That's what we get in return. So tell me, do you live as though you've been forgiven in this manner? Is your life being stewarded in such a way that you live in light of being forgiven of your sin? How has God's forgiveness of your sin through Christ's sacrifice at the cross, how has that affected your decision making? How has that affected your devotion to his word? How has that affected your time in the secret place of prayer? How has that affected your love toward one another? The blood of Jesus was shed to secure the forgiveness of your sin. And this is no small matter. And yet our lives tend to communicate it really doesn't matter all that much. If Christ's death puts away sin, then we should live as forgiven people. Forgiven much, then the scriptures would call us then to what? Love much. Are we living with an awareness of what Christ has done for us? So that central question that if, if Christ's death, if his sacrifice puts away sin, what difference then will this make in our living? First of all, we, we see from the text that, that we ought to live as forgiven people. Secondly, when we look at verses 23 through 28, I believe we see that we should live as heavenly minded people. Not only forgiven people, but heavenly minded people. 
How often do you think about heaven in the course of your day? You know, you pick up an old hymnal. I love the old hymnals. You pick up an old hymnal, and it's hard to miss this. The hymn writers back in the day, they thought a great deal about heaven. How do I know? Because that's what they wrote about. They were always writing about heaven. Thinking about that day. What it's going to be like to see Jesus. To be in his presence. To no longer know in part, but to fully realize him. To see him face to face. Tell me, what does a heavenly minded song do for your soul? You see, if you're in Christ, these types of songs, they they ought to stir up the longing in your soul to be with Jesus where he is. You see, they capture our attention on the way that things will be one day. They're not that way yet, but one day they're going to be. These songs, they anticipate the time of great rejoicing with all of the saints gathered around the throne, worshiping the Lamb who was slain. They raise our hearts and our minds from the earthly trials and the difficult circumstances here to a time when the old order of things, they're going to pass away, a time when all things will be made new. They deliver hope and they encourage us to keep holding on while we sojourn here for but a time. That's what those songs do. The Hebrew writer tells us in verse 23 that it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, with with blood, the blood of animals. But the heavenly things, uh, here's that word again, with better sacrifices than these. Better. All along in Hebrews, that word's been coming out, hasn't it? Better. Christ is better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. Better than the old priesthood. Better than the old covenant. All these things. Better. Well, what we see here in this passage is that even his sacrifices is deemed better. It's a better sacrifice. The sacrifice is not one, as we'll see here in a moment, of bulls and goats. It's of Christ's very life. And no doubt the sacrifices of animals served its purpose for a time. But Christ, according to verse 24, he's not entered the holy places made with hands. No, the Bible says here that according to the scripture that that he entered into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. See, the earthly high priest would enter behind that veil, you remember? He'd enter on on behalf of whom? The people. Christ doesn't go behind that earthly veil. Christ entered into the heavens, into the presence of God for us. He did that for us. The writer wants us to understand that Jesus offered one sacrifice. You can't miss that. If you read Hebrews, the middle part here, Time and time and time again, he keeps talking about one time, one time, one time, one sacrifice. He didn't enter into heaven and then, like the earthly high priest, have to offer himself often. Nor did he have to offer the blood of another. 
That's what the text talks about. It's the way they'd operated back in the Old Covenant. Look at the end of verse 26. But now, once at the end of the ages, once at the time of consummation, he was bringing things to an end here. At the end of this old way of doing things, once he has appeared to put away sin, there it is. How is he going to do that? By the sacrifice of himself. One time, he completely put away, the same word here for put away in 26 is the, is the word that we saw in 7.18. For on the one hand, there is an, an annulling. We could substitute the word annul. He, he, he put it away, an annulling. Once at the end of the ages, he's appeared to annul or put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, not by the blood of bulls and goats. Look at 27, 28. And as it is appointed for men to die once, there's that phrase again, once, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin, for salvation. Now the principle of dying is submitted here in the text. This is important. We ought not pass over this. Men die how many times? Once. Do you realize that there are some folks today who, who, who believe, wholeheartedly believe, that when they die they just come back as another person. And then they just can't come back again as another person. And they get another do-over. And they get to do it again. I, I want to point this out to you, not to make light of what they hold to. I want to point it out to you so that you know from the scriptures what is the truth. Men die once. One time. That's the testimony of the scripture. That's the principle of death. Dying. You die one time. You don't repeat the cycle. Here, keep doing it until you're satisfied with the one you like. Why the need to speak of judgment here in this passage. Men die once and then the judgment, it says. You see, as the listener is confronted with truth, it's imperative, I believe this is not just for a first century audience, this is also for us today to hear very loudly and clearly. It's imperative to speak of judgment that is yet to come when this life ends. You see, men die and then the judgment. I believe the writer is saying here that, that don't think for a moment that refusal of Christ, refusal of the new covenant that comes with Christ, don't think for a moment it comes without ramifications. The judgment adds the eternal perspective that's needed. You will die, it's pretty certain, unless the Lord should return first. You will die, but what's the state of your soul? Have you believed in Christ and received his finished work at the cross by faith? You see, Christ was offered once. Men die once. Men then go through the judgment. What about Christ? He dies. He's buried. He's raised. These are all core components of the gospel, right? He then spends 40 days, whirlwind tour, teaching, preaching about the kingdom of heaven. And then he ascends. And now he is seated at the right. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high, he's awaiting a second visit. 
But I want you to understand something. The one who bore your sins at the cross is the one that God the Father has given all measure of judgment to. The one who laid down his life for you is also the one who is going to be the judge on that day. What's the standard of judgment? The Bible says it's righteousness. Well, man, if that's the standard, I want to get that. How do I obtain that? What's, what's that look like? See, there's, I want you to know there's one way for you to receive this perfect righteousness. And it's through, I'll use the words from the scripture, it's through one man's obedience. Through one man's obedience, whereby many are made righteous. That's Romans 5.19. That's how. You also might remember 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says God made him who knew no sin. That's Jesus. To be sin for us. He was our substitute. So that we might become. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Okay. That's how we obtain righteousness. It's through Christ. Through his sacrifice. By means of his blood. And so it says here that to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Listen, heavenly minded people eagerly wait for Christ. Did you hear that? They eagerly, what is it to do something eagerly? When you're getting ready to go to a a vacation somewhere and it's next month, you are, don't lie to me because I know this happens in our home with our children. When you're going somewhere and you know you got a big trip coming, you are eager, you can't wait. Well, it seems like we get more excited about those kinds of things than we do about our Lord Jesus. I'm giving you that as a picture because when we think about what it is to wait eagerly for something, we're anticipating it. Heavenly-minded people eagerly wait for Christ. They long to receive, as Peter says, the end of their faith, the salvation of their souls. Heavenly-minded people are looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who, what did he do? He gave himself for us that he might, what? Redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. That's Titus chapter 2. We also see that in the Bible, heavenly-minded people understand. They understand that this world is not their home. Heavenly-minded people understand that this world is not their home. They recognize that their citizenship is grounded where? In heaven. From which we also eagerly await a Savior. It sounds, this this passage in Hebrews chapter 9 sounds a lot like what Paul writes about in Philippians 3.20. You see, things here are not to be held too tightly in light of what the writer here has already talked about in Hebrews, in light of entering that final rest. Heavenly-minded people seek things above. They set their mind on things above. And they store up treasures in heaven. Where did I come up with those? Colossians 3, 1-3. Matthew's Gospel. Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6, 19 through 21. 
Are you living with an eagerness for what is yet to come? See, as a follower of Jesus, we need to ask, is our, is our life marked by forgiveness and heavenly mindedness? We're asking the question, in light of Christ's sacrifice, how then ought this to affect my life? Let's look at the final four verses. Look with me at Hebrews 10. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then they, would they have not ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible. It is not possible. I'll read it one more time. It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. How then should we live? We should live as grateful people. Grateful people, I'm going to explain. The law having the shadow and not the very image can never make those who approach, the, the worshiper, can never make him perfect. You can look at, at chapter 9, verse 9. It speaks a, a similar fashion. There it says it was symbolic for the present time in which gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. We talked about that a little bit last week. It's sort of connecting those thoughts here in chapter 10. And he says, if these sacrifices under the First Testament were sufficient, if they truly purified the conscience of the worshiper, wouldn't they have stopped with the sacrifices? Enough of the sacrifices if it would have worked, if it would have atoned, if it would have taken care of the sin issue. But the writer says that far from satisfying the conscience of the worshiper, they served as a reminder. A reminder. How many of you on your phones have reminders? Do you set your own reminders? Anybody do that? You set reminders. Why do you do that? We do that because we need it. We need it. And especially the older we get, the more this thing doesn't work as, as it once did. We need reminders. But so you see that these sacrifices, far from cleansing the conscience, this became... An exercise of an annual reminder. O'Brien in his commentary says that the reminder of sins, it involved appropriate action. Either pardon or punishment. Pardon or punishment. Listen, but he says, but a pardon that had to be given repeatedly? And only as so far as ceremonial expression was concerned? The outward, we talked about that last week, just the outward idea of cleansing. It couldn't bring peace to the conscience like a pardon bestowed once for all. And he really lays it out concrete in, in verse 4. It's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Not only does the sacrifice of animals serve as an annual reminder of sins. It's not possible for such sacrifices to take away sins. Listen. You want a sacrifice that's able to take away your sins. Amen? You want a sacrifice that's able to take away your sins. You want to know with certainty about your sin, don't you? You want a sense of security. You want a sense of hope of things yet to come, don't you? There's one sacrifice alone that can take away your sins. 
And you need to know and you need to understand that for, for without this particular sacrifice that's being described in the scriptures, Christ, his sacrifice, you're then held accountable for your own sin. For those eagerly waiting for Jesus, there is the prospect, O'Brien says, of salvation. We think about salvation. What is that? The rescue from judgment and the enjoyment of the promised eternal inheritance. It's twofold. It's a rescue from judgment. Remember, men die once and then the judgment. It's a, this salvation is a rescue from that judgment. A rescue from the wrath of God, as Romans talks about. But it's also looking forward to the enjoyment. Being in his presence. Taking in that wonderful eternal inheritance that's been promised. You see, the wages of your sin is death. And when death comes, the judgment happens. There's going to be an immediate realization as to whether you've been covered by the blood of Christ or not. See, his sacrifice is the only one that allows you to reach your heavenly home safely and securely. His sacrifice is the only one that can cover your sin completely and cleanse your conscience for good. It's true that in Christ alone, as we sing, in Christ alone, our hope is found. It's also true that no power of death, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from God's hand. There's wonderful security there in Christ You're kept by his power. You're comforted by his spirit. You are assured through his promised word that one day you will be with Jesus. Listen, we should be the most grateful people on the planet because of Christ's sacrifice, because of him putting away our sin. That's where the gratitude comes in. When we think about what he's done for us, how then should we live? Gratitude. We ought to be living as forgiven people. We ought to be living as heavenly-minded people. And we ought to be living as grateful people. And these are all connectors. They're all connected one to another. Tell me, when's the last time that you just thanked the Lord for his sacrifice on your behalf? Listen, someone died for you. That someone is Jesus. Not just a a character in a Bible story. He literally laid down his life for you. Because of that, we ought to live with an alertness to daily. An alertness to daily gratitude. You see, your sin had to be punished. And so God sends his son Jesus from the heavenlies to serve as your substitute. To do what only he could do. He died as the perfect lamb of God, shedding his blood to satisfy God's wrath against your sin. It's paid for, it's taken care of because of Christ's death at the cross. We're forgiven at the cross. A heavenly mindedness ought now to be the theme of our thought patterns. And gratitude ought now to be the song in our heart, the fruit of our lips, giving him praise. We sing, what a wonderful change in my life he has been wrought since what? Since Jesus came into my heart. Floods of joy over my soul. Like the sea billows roll. Since what? Since Jesus came into my heart. Tell me, since Jesus came into your heart, what difference has it made? Since Jesus has come into your heart, do other people know that you know Jesus, that you're living your life for Jesus? What difference does it make? 
was reading this week at the end of one of my devotional studies. I love the line that was put in here by the author. He said, talking about Christ, and he said, He has washed away your sin and will safely bring you home according to his steadfast love. Love that. How should we live in light of Christ's death that puts away our sin? We should live as forgiven, heavenly-minded, and grateful people. You know, as I was watching a few of the baseball players lay down bunts, sacrifice themselves for the good of the team, advancing their teammates around the bases closer to home, I was reminded of something else that connects to how we should be living out our days. You see, the sacrifice of Jesus is the greatest act of love that's recorded in the scriptures. Most of us know John 3.16. We could recite it. If we don't know it, we need to also know and learn 1 John 3.16. Because it says, by this we know love. Because he laid down his life for us. Did you hear that? We know love because Jesus laid down his life for us. So when we sing about the old rugged cross, we know, I want you to know that you're singing about God's great love toward you in Jesus. When you partake of the cup of the new covenant being in Christ, which represents Jesus' blood shed on the cross to take away your sin, know that you are the recipient of his love poured out. But as great as that love is, listen, it's intended to manifest itself through you, me, through us. It's intended to manifest itself through us. If you look at the end of 1 John 3.16, it says, And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We also. You see, because of his sacrifice for us, because we now know the truth about love, the greatest expression of that love, we also ought to lay down our lives for just, our, wait, wait a minute, pause, just our immediate family members, just our spouses. No, that's not what it says. For the brethren, for the body of Christ. That doesn't even include just the people inside these walls. The, the believers, Galatians chapter 5, 6 comes to mind about how we ought to be loving others and sharing with others and serving others, especially those who are of what? The household of faith. Those are the people we're called to lay down our lives for. It's an amazing thing. Speaking of amazing, it, it is. And I, I, was, I was reminded of that this week, how an amazing feat. It really is an amazing feat to see the ball fly over the fence, home run. Pretty, pretty big deal. It's pretty neat. But I read this text, and I see something more amazing than a home run. It's counter to the glamour and the glitter that's advertised by the world. But here's what I see. I see an amazing love demonstrated by sacrifice. It's sacrifice. That amazing love church is intended to manifest itself in us to the point that we also lay down our lives for the brethren. And so I would ask, who's ready to sacrifice in this manner?
Who's ready? Imagine yourself up to the plate. And the third base coach, in this instance, again, I'm drawing the picture. This is a picture. And the Lord is down there and he's giving you the sign. God himself's giving you the sign. He's giving you the sign because this is what his word says. His word says that you're to lay down your life for the brethren. Who's ready to do that? Who's ready to follow that instruction? In light of Christ's death, putting away our sin, how then should we live? We should live as forgiven people. And knowing we're forgiven then will lead to a heavenly-minded disposition. And and a heavenly-minded disposition reveals daily gratitude. Do you know this morning, friends, what it is to be forgiven, heavenly-minded, and grateful? Jesus sacrificed his life to make this kind of living possible. The Father in heaven made the call and his son carried out the redemptive plan with a sacrifice. He laid down his life for us. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Amen? Isn't that good news? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this good word. We thank you for the truths of the scripture. And we thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit bringing to our attention the application of these core gospel truths. Lord, I pray we would read the scripture and we would not see the scripture simply as facts to be learned. But Lord, these would be truths that we would endeavor with your Holy Spirit's help to live out. Stir us and shake us, move us to understand the impact of Christ's death on the cross. What it did, what it does even now for us today. Help us to see that this sacrifice that Christ made was better, so much better than the sacrifice that was made back in the Old Covenant. The blood of bulls and goats that couldn't save, couldn't cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. In fact, was simply an annual reminder of sin. And along comes Jesus, who is able to completely atone for our sin problem. Father, we thank you. As one who is forgiven, I pray that each of us here would live in light of being forgiven, that what would come as a result of that would be great love. We would be a people that love one another. Father, we would also be heavenly minded. Our thoughts would be above. We would be storing our treasures above. We would think much about heaven. We would sing much about heaven. We would be heavenly minded people. And Father, every day of our lives, we would also be grateful for this sacrifice that you have given to us in Jesus. The Bible says that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son, your one and only son. You gave him up, sent him down here to earth, taking on the form of mankind. And he was going to go lay down his life for us. For that, Lord, I pray that we would be the most grateful people every day, thanking you for this wonderful gift of salvation.
So, Lord, we do thank you for the blood that covers us. We thank you that even though we were once far away, that's what the writer of Ephesians says, we were far away, but through your blood you've brought us near. Thank you, Jesus, for bringing us near. It's in his name we pray. Amen.